And that spiritual family, the family of God that Ben was talking about, we are united together, not by blood, the way that you might be with your physical family, but by our beliefs, what we believe, what we hold to be true. And that's what this study that I started last week is about. What do we believe? What are the doctrines, the theology, the beliefs that make a difference in our lives? And I think this study is so important. It's an important period, but especially today, because you know, as we talked about last week, you know, Paul writes to Timothy, and he talks about people who someday will no longer tolerate sound doctrine, but that they accumulate, they amass to themselves teachers who will itch, uh, scratch where they itch, you know, that, that will tell them what they want to hear, and that is so descriptive of today. Uh, you think about the, the way we can subscribe to channels, the way we can, we can subscribe and, and follow and like different people online. Oh, it's so easy for us to surround ourselves with people who tell us what we want to hear and people who will just simply agree with our political leanings or agree with our opinions on different things or will affirm whatever lifestyles we've chosen to live Paul has perfectly described our day, and and for that reason, it's very confusing. People get very confused very easily about what they believe. Uh, I read a quote last week from R.C. Sproul, put that back up on the screen. No Christian can avoid theology. Every Christian has a theology. The issue then is not, do we want to have a theology? That is a given. The real issue is, do we have a sound theology? Do we embrace true or false doctrine. And my heart through this series is to help us evaluate, is my doctrine sound? Do I hold to a false set of beliefs or beliefs that are true and based on the Word of God? And we're using the Baptist Faith and Message 2000 as our tool to help guide us through this study. And and the Baptist Faith and Message, like the Apostles' Creed that we're looking at on Wednesday nights, um, they help us have a well rounded grasp on what we believe. They remind us, as Ben was saying, that we're part of a family, a larger community of faith. The Apostles' Creed is 1,600 years old. It helps us to understand that we're part of a larger Christian faith community around the world. The Baptist Faith and Message specifically helps us remember we're part of a larger Baptist group of believers that have very specific beliefs about God's Word. And these are useful tools to hold us accountable to those beliefs. Help us evaluate uh, the errors maybe that might creep in. Help us avoid that doctrinal drift, uh, those sinking sands of the culture and people's opinions around us. The Baptist Faith Message is a tool. It's not the same as the Bible. It doesn't have the authority and power of the Bible, but it points us back to the Bible. Uh, When we started our study, Wednesday Night on the Apostles' Creed, uh, in the video, Matt Chandler used the analogy of the sun and the moon. That the moon doesn't generate any light of its own, right? It reflects the light of the sun. And so a creed, a confession of faith, a statement of belief like the Baptist Faith and Message do not generate its own truth. It does not have authority and power in and of itself, but it reflects that which comes from the Bible. It points us back to the Word of God. If you spend any time looking at studies and and, and different things that groups do. Pew Research does a lot of studies. Lifeway will do a lot of studies about what Americans believe about God or what you know, supposed evangelical Christians believe about the Bible. If you read that kind of stuff, it can get a little disheartening. You can get discouraged real quick when you realize uh, the kind of falsehoods and the kind of misinformation and false beliefs that are out there. there there's a lot of confusion. 
And part of that is that people tend to go with what feels good in the moment, not with what is true, not with what is biblical or, or rational or logical. It's, it's what feels good, what sounds right. And that changes. It changes with culture. It changes with our life experience. If we're just basing things on our opinions and our feelings and our ideas, we're going to be wrong more times than we're right. In 2020, Lifeway did a study on Americans and theology, and they asked people if they agreed, how much they agreed with this statement. The statement was, religious belief is a matter of personal opinion. It's not about objective truth. 54% of people agreed with that. The majority. Now, it shouldn't surprise us that the majority of Americans have rejected the idea of absolute objective truth and have embraced relativism. That's the culture in which we live. It's no wonder then that Americans have less respect for the Bible as an, object, as an objectively true book about real people and events that have authority in our lives. Americans don't have that level of respect for the Bible they once had. So last week we started by looking at the Bible. That, that is the foundation for all of our theology. I, you're not interested in just hearing what David believes and thinks about things. We want to know what God's Word has to say about these doctrines and these issues in our world. That's what we're going to look at. What does the Bible have to say? Well, then we need to understand what the Bible is. And, and why is the Bible the source of authority? Why is this what we turn to as we think about what we believe and why? And so last week we read the Baptist Faith and Message's first article. It's the article on the Scripture. You'll see that printed on the back of your order of worship. Uh, and also you'll notice that the notes this week is an insert. So I hope you'll pull out that insert because uh, we've got a lot we want to say today. But let's start by reading again our text from last week, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 17. The Apostle Paul is writing to Timothy. He says, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed. You know those who taught you, and you know that from infancy you have known the sacred scriptures, which are able to give you wisdom for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So last week we looked at uh, the first point, the Bible has God for its author. Okay, We looked at the idea of the Bible being divinely inspired by God. That's what Paul says, that all Scripture is inspired by God. And that word inspired means breathe. God breathed. We think about respiration. We think if, if somebody expires, they've died, they've had their last breath. And to, to inspire is to breathe into. God has breathed into His Word. He's breathed it into existence. Just as He breathed into man's lungs and, and he, be, he became a living being, so God has breathed His Spirit into His Word. And we talked about this idea of the verbal plenary inspiration of Scripture. What that means is that every word of the Bible is inspired. It's not just inspired in a generic way. It's not just that the ideas of the Bible are inspired. It's not just that the men who wrote it were inspired. The very words that were written were inspired such that they are the very words of God. And then we talked about how the Bible not only was divinely inspired by God, but faithfully preserved by God, that he, if he's going to take all this time and effort to inspire these people to write the Bible, 
Certainly, He's also going to provide for the faithful preservation of Scripture. And we looked at how it's amazing with research and scholarship and, and all of the different findings of, of textual fragments of Scripture, uh, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of them, some of them dating to within a generation, you know, even 30 years of when the original uh, Gospel of Mark was written, for example. And it's amazing how every one of these texts, they affirm what we have today as being accurate and true. It is the Word of God, divinely inspired, faithfully preserved, because God is its author. But secondly, today, let's look at this. It also has salvation for its end. God for its author, salvation for its end. Look back at verse 15. Paul says that Timothy's known from infancy the sacred Scripture, which are able to give you wisdom for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. The Bible is God's primary method of revealing to us and connecting with us and communicating to us His thoughts, His will, His desires, and at the center of that communication is Jesus. I like the way the Jesus Storybook Bible, the great children's Bible, puts it. It says, every story whispers His name. Every story whispers the name of Jesus because the Bible is one unified story pointing us all to Jesus Christ. For example, the Old Testament law reveals to us that we are sinners and that we are hopelessly lost and we need to be made right with God. The Levitical system shows us that Jesus is the ultimate high priest and the perfect sinless sacrifice. It is the way by which we are made right before God. The Old Testament prophets were prophesying and pointing ahead to the one who would come and not just have God's law written on stone but inscribed on our very hearts. The Gospels, of course, tell us the the record of of the birth, the life, the teaching, the miracles, the self-sacrifice of Jesus Christ for our atonement. Acts reveals the birth of Jesus' church and how we are to carry out His great commission in the power of His Spirit. The epistles, the letters that Paul and John and James and Peter and them write, they explain the depth of meaning behind what Jesus did for us on the cross and how important it is for us to depend on the transforming power of His Spirit. And then the Revelation foretells how one day Jesus will return to judge the living and the dead and restore all of creation and make it new. Everything in the Bible revolves around and points to the person and work of Jesus Christ. Paul says that God's Word here, it's the wisdom for salvation. In Romans chapter 1, he calls it the power for salvation. Look at Romans 1.16. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. And he kind of expands on that in Romans 10. He says that faith comes from what is heard and what is heard comes through the message about Christ. So we read the Bible because it tells us about Jesus. It is the power of God for salvation because it explains our need for a Savior and how we can come to know that Savior and become children of God. Jesus in Matthew 28 gives us His great commission where He tells us that we are to go into all the nations and make disciples and baptize them and teach them to obey everything He has commanded us. Now, how could we do that if we didn't have a written record of His commands? How could we know and follow, much less teach others, all that Jesus commanded us to do if it wasn't for the fact that God wrote them down for us in His Word? It is the power of God for salvation because it reveals to us the plan of salvation. 
But not only is it the power of salvation, it is the prophet of sanctification. Prophet, P-R-O-F-I-T. The prophet of sanctification. Paul tells us there in 2 Timothy that all Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable. It is useful. It benefits us beyond our salvation because it enables our sanctification. Now, sanctification is one of those churchy words, one of those fancy words. It basically means to become more like Jesus. That we are becoming more holy, more Christ-like in our life. The Bible is the power of salvation because, again, it reveals our great need, it reveals God's great provision and how we can come into this saving relationship with Him, but it doesn't end there. It is profitable in helping us become more like Jesus. And Paul gives us some specific ways that it does that. First, because it teaches God's truth. The Bible gives us as complete a picture of God as you and I could possibly comprehend. It so completely describes God's character and nature for us, it doesn't leave any room for us to just kind of formulate our own opinions and come up with our own ideas about who God is and what He's like. The Bible is our source and textbook for all sound doctrine, for everything we could say about who God is. It's the basis for the Christian worldview. The Bible narrates for us the world in which we live. What's wrong with it? Where it's going? It helps us to understand the world around us because it teaches us God's truth. Secondly, he says that then also rebukes. It's profitable for teaching, for rebuking. It rebukes our sin. That word rebuke means to point out fault. In other words, God's Holy Spirit takes God's Holy Word and convicts us of the unholy sin in our lives. When we read when we study, when we memorize, when we meditate on God's Word, we should always have David's prayer in Psalm 139 in our hearts. David says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. When you read the Bible, you're reading it for more than just information. You're reading it for transformation. When you read the Bible, it should always be with a prayer. God, use this to search me, to try me, to test my thoughts, to point out any offensive way in me. When we read the Word of God, it should change us. The author of Hebrews says in chapter 4 that the Word of God is living and active. He says it's sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered, laid bare before the eyes of Him to whom we must give account. Listen, if you're using the Bible properly, it's not so much that you are looking into the Bible as it is looking into you. You begin to realize that it's the one that's reading you and studying you. James compares it to a mirror. Why do you walk up and look in a mirror? Well, it's because you're just so good looking, right? And you just, you just have to admire God's handiwork, right? No. That's not why I look in a mirror. Maybe you do. I, in fact, I try to avoid looking in mirrors as much as I can because they point out my faults, don't they? You stand there and look in that mirror and you're trying on clothes and you're like, it kind of makes me look fat, doesn't it? I, 
they lose a little bit of weight. Or you stand in the mirror and you look at your hair so you can fix it, right? You, you look to make sure you don't have any food stuck in your teeth. You look to make sure that your, your tie is straight. Whatever. We look in a mirror because it points out our faults. It rebukes us. And that's the way the Word of God is. It rebukes us of our sin. It exposes us to the core of our being. It's a sword. It's a scalpel that God uses to expose the cancer of sin so His Holy Spirit can remove it. It rebukes us of our sin so that it can correct our actions. So those go together. It rebukes us of our sin. It points out our faults so it can correct them. God uses His Word to correct the errors in our thinking and in our living When we hold up to the unchanging, absolute truth of God's Word, the opinions, the philosophies, the ideas, the half-truths and the lies of the world, they're exposed for what they are. It's sort of like if an airplane is off course, right? And maybe it's even flying into the path of another plane. It's instruments or or, or the, the tower on the ground will alert that pilot so he can do what? Make a course correction. Get back on the right path. That's what the Bible does for us. Or as the psalmist writes in Psalm 119.9, how can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping your word. The Bible keeps us on the path of righteousness. It keeps us, it helps us when we begin to stray, when we begin to drift into the world's ways of thinking and living, it helps us to correct our course. Number four, Paul says it also trains us for living. So that's sort of more proactive. It's not just a reactive. It doesn't just point out our faults and help us correct them. It trains us for living, specifically for righteousness. Training for righteousness. That means the very mind of Christ, the very character of God, are forming within us and informing our thoughts and transforming our lives. That's what it does. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, Paul uses an analogy. He says to Timothy, train yourself to be godly. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. So think about all of the time and the effort and the money we put into our physical well-being, right? And especially in January, right, people are making lots of plans for this year to lose weight, to join a gym, to exercise more, whatever it is, get more sleep. We put so much thought and effort into our physical well-being. We join a gym, we we exercise, we're going to run a mile every day, whatever it is that lasts maybe two or three weeks, right? By February, you'll be right back to the old way. You know, and and it's not that those things are bad. I mean, those things are good, right? We should take care of our bodies, but that only has benefit for how long? At most, all that physical training will benefit you until you die. That's it. That's That's the most. Paul says, how much more should we train ourselves spiritually because it has benefit in this life and the next life? Should we not put at least as much time and effort and money into training ourselves for godly living? taking care of our spiritual health and well-being. And guess what? You don't have to join a gym. You don't have to buy any special equipment. God is giving you everything you need right here. This is the equipment. This is the workout plan. This is the diet. This is everything you need for right living, to train you to be the kind of person God would have you be. 
Peter writes in 2 Peter chapter 1, His divine power has given us everything we need. Everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. Through these He has given us His very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. God has given us everything we need to train us in righteous living, and it's in His Word. And then number five, Paul says, it's profitable because it equips us for working. It equips us for working. God gave us the Scriptures. He says, so we could be complete, mature people, properly trained and equipped for any and every task that God gives us. From the beginning of creation, God created us for a task. He created Adam and Eve, put them in the garden to work the garden to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over it. He he gave Noah a pretty big task, didn't he? To build a big boat, gather all the animals. Abraham was called to be the father of a mighty nation. Moses was called to lead God's people from slavery in Egypt to the promised land. Joshua was given the mission of conquering that land and settling the people. David was given the mission of being the king for God's people. Jesus was given the mission to be the sinless sacrifice for our sins. And the apostles, the disciples, the early church and us have been given the mission to go into all the world and make disciples. God has always called His people to join Him in His creative and redemptive mission. Or as Paul put it in 2 Corinthians 5.20, we are ambassadors for Christ. God is making His appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. We are on mission for God in this world. We're His ambassadors. We're His agents of reconciliation. We are to be disciples who make disciples for Jesus. And everything we need to know to be saved, to follow Jesus, to serve His church, to reach this world, to better our marriages, to overcome sin, to become the kind of people God has called us to be, it's all right here in His Word. Sola Scriptura. The Word of God is all we need. It is sufficient for everything in our lives. Now, does that mean we can't use other tools? Does that mean we can't read other books? Of course not. But those things must line up with what the Word of God says. The Word of God is the plumb line by which we hold all of these things. It's the level that lets us know that we're on the straight and narrow. There is nothing out there in the world that you can learn that is not supported or rooted in what God has revealed to us in His Word. In other words, the Bible isn't lacking in any area. There wasn't something later on that God said, oh, whoops, I forgot to put that in there. I need to, I need to give you a supplement. All right, Here's the appendix to the Bible. That's not needed. The Bible is complete. It is whole. The canon is closed. It is exactly what God intended us to have. It is your one-stop shop, all-in-one resource for faith and for life. The Word of God. Has God for its author salvation for its end, and truth for its matter. The doctrine of the Bible basically boils down to this. It's reliability and it's authority. That's number three. Number three, truth for its matter. And that's why it's essential for us to understand that the Bible is God's truth without any mixture of error, without any mistakes, without any failings, 
This taps into what we talked about last week, about the inspiration of the Bible. What does it mean for the Bible to be inspired Word of God? If you can't trust all of Scripture, how can you trust any of it? How can I trust any of it? If it's just man's words about God instead of God's word to man, how is it any more true or relevant or authoritative than anything I might say? Or that Gandhi might say? Or Muhammad? Or or Oprah? If it's just man's words about God, who is to determine what in the Bible is true or not? Who is to determine what is correct and not correct? Which is God's word and which is man's word? You? Do you have that kind of authority and insight? That's why it's vital that we're clear on what it means for God to inspire His Word, to breathe His truth and His power and His life into the men who wrote this Bible so that these words are the very words of God. And if that is true, which I firmly believe it is, then there are some things about the Bible we have to believe and understand. The first is that the Bible is authoritative. If this is God's inspired Word to us, then the Bible has to be authoritative. Think about that word authority. What is the root word in the word authority? Anybody? Author. The Bible is authoritative because of who wrote it. If it is the word of God, then it has authority over our lives. If I'm a follower of Jesus, I've been bought with a price, I am no longer my own, I belong to Him, and this is His word, then I have no right to dismiss or question any biblical text. If all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable, then I must receive it all. We are to follow the the clear teachings of Scripture, not people's interpretations, not people's opinions, not some new revelation, not what Paul calls fables and myths and empty speculations and empty philosophies of men. We are to take all of our doctrines, all of our opinions, all of our beliefs and hold them up to the clear teaching of Scripture. It is authoritative for Christians because it is the written Word of God that reveals to us the living Word of God. Is the Bible authoritative in your life? You know, we all have a source of authority. All of us do. It's either ourself. Good luck with that. (laughs) I can't even agree with myself half the time, right? Or it's somebody else in your life. Or it's some popular person in the culture that doesn't know you from Adam. We all have a source of authority. My authority is the Word of God. Secondly, we have to understand and believe the Bible then is infallible. The Bible is infallible. Listen, human wisdom fails. Heaven and earth will pass away. But God's Word will never fail and it will never pass away. It is the strongest weapon in the Christian's arsenal because it is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, Paul writes in Ephesians 6. Isaiah 55.11 tells us, God says, My Word that comes from my mouth will not return to be empty, but it will accomplish what I please and will prosper in what I send it to do. Listen, God, does God ever fail? No. Does God's will ever fail? Neither will God's Word ever fail. It will accomplish everything that He sends it out to accomplish. It is the infallible Word of God. Third, it is the inerrant Word of God. The Bible is inerrant. Now, 
That's a controversial word to some. It's been politicized by people. Uh, and it's certainly not a common word. Inerrant isn't a word we usually use. So what does that mean? Well, the 1978 Chicago Statement on Inerrancy defines it as this. Being free from all falsehood, fraud, or deceit. Free from all falsehood, fraud, and deceit. Scholar David Dockery defines it as the idea that when all the facts are known, the Bible and its original documents, properly interpreted in the light of the culture and the means of communication that are developed by the time of its composition, is completely true in all that it affirms, to the degree of precision intended by the author's purposes, in all matters relating to God and His creation. Now, there's a lot there to unpack. But basically, like with inspiration... There are a wide range of views on inerrancy. Does that mean that the truths and ideas of the Bible are inerrant or the words of the Bible are inerrant? Are all parts of the Bible inerrant or just some parts of the Bible inerrant? Well, let me ask you this. If God's word, if God is true and trustworthy, and this is his inspired word, then are we not to treat it as being true and trustworthy? If God is perfect and holy and sinless and He can't make any mistakes, He can't err, then wouldn't it be true if this is God's inspired Word that it is also free of errors and mistakes and it's true and trustworthy? If God cannot lie and this is His Word, is it not to be taken as truth? Listen, Jesus and every New Testament writer, when they cite the Old Testament, they do so with the understanding that it is true, that it is accurate, that it is the Word of God. When Jesus says Moses wrote, either Jesus is lying and Moses didn't write it, Jesus is ignorant and doesn't know that Moses didn't write it, or guess what? Moses wrote it. Or else you have to discount Jesus Himself. Paul quotes, or Peter quotes Paul and ascribes to it the authority and truth of Scripture. The Bible is self-authenticating and it leaves no room to deny that it is truth without any mixture of error. Or else you have to discount all of Scripture. So to describe the Bible as inerrant is to hold a high view of the inspiration and authority of the Bible. And listen, if you study Christian history for five minutes, you quickly learn that any place there's a low view of the inspiration and authority of the Bible, heresy abounds every time. The biggest issue is that if all Scripture is not equally true, again, who gets to decide what is true and what is not? What is right and what is wrong? Jesus himself said in John 17, 17, Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Not your word contains truth. Not your word points to truth. He said your word, speaking to the Father, your word is truth. Jesus clearly believed that the word of God is the truth and because it is purely true, it can sanctify us by that truth. Listen, if the Bible is filled with errors and mistakes, how in the world can it correct my errors and mistakes, right? If it's not purely true, how can it sanctify me? It can't. Now, I understand people get caught up. They, they get caught up in so-called contradictions or incons inconsistencies in the Bible. And 
Trust me, as somebody who's been to college and seminary and earned my, my D-men and somebody who for a living studies the Bible, I'm well aware of every one of them. There is nothing in the Bible that you're going to read and scratch your head and say, huh, that's concerning, that's confusing, that's not new, you've not discovered something new, that's something that people are aware of, we've studied it, we understand it, and if you take five minutes to actually study that so-called inconsistency or contradiction and use the basic Tools you learned in English class, as far as reading literature, 99.9% of those are easily and quickly resolved. I mean, they just, they really aren't inconsistencies at all. For example, there's a big difference between a contradiction and a difference, right? Something can be different without contradicting something else. So sometimes you'll have you know, a story in Second Chronicles that's the same story as First Kings, and there's an extra added detail in there. Does that mean that one is right and one is wrong, or just that somebody gave you a little bit more information the second time around? The Gospel writers. You've got four different Gospel accounts of the life of Jesus. There's a little bit of difference in each of those, but they don't contradict each other. They complete each other. They complement each other. You've got different people reporting the same events from different perspectives. Peter included a little detail when he was talking to Mark that John didn't include. That doesn't make out a contradiction, just a difference. Bible writers wrote the way we write, the way we talk. Sometimes they intentionally exaggerate. Sometimes they generalize things. Sometimes they round up the number. Preachers especially like to round up numbers. You know, I understand that. That doesn't make them wrong. It makes it a complete picture. And listen, throughout the centuries, scholars, archaeologists, historians have tried to discount the Bible. And one of my favorite things to do, and, and I follow these things online, one of my favorite things to do is to read an article about some recent archaeological discovery or some new text that they've uncovered and then have translated that actually proves something in the Bible that scholars had kind of poo-pooed and said, oh, that couldn't have happened, or oh, that wasn't there. This happens all the time. You'll find some inscription of some royal official's name that's listed in 1 Chronicles 3, and they'll be like, wow, look at that. He really did live. Or they'll say, yeah, you know, this city that it talks about, or this pool that Jesus supposedly sent this guy to bathe in, yeah, you know, there's no proof that exists, and then a few years later they dig it up. Oh, well, looky there. There it is. Happens all the time. Listen, if you believe the Bible is inspired, inerrant, and infallible, that doesn't mean that you think you know everything there is about the Bible. That doesn't mean that you believe that your views and interpretations of the Bible are inerrant, infallible. That doesn't mean that you turn a blind eye to difficult sayings or, or to stories and details that are hard for us to interpret. What it means is that when you don't understand something in the Bible, when something doesn't seem to make sense to you, your first instinct is to question your understanding, not the Bible's truthfulness. You understand the difference there? I might read something in the Bible and say, I don't understand that. That doesn't make sense to me. That doesn't mean it's not true. That means I need to grow in my understanding. And with study and prayer, we usually can. Number four, right? D, four. D, D, four? Yeah. Number four, the Bible is sufficient. The Bible is sufficient. We've talked about this a little bit already, but it just means that in our faith, in our relationships, in our finances, there's nothing the Bible doesn't address. And there's nothing we can add to the Bible. There's nothing we subtract from the Bible. In all of life's most important questions, we can look to God's Word for clear guidance. 
And number five, the Bible is eternal. It's eternal. It is the inspired Word of God given and preserved throughout history so that we can know, believe, and follow Jesus. Many times in the Bible it talks about how God's Word lasts forever. It is the solid rock. Jesus said it is the foundation upon which we should build our lives if we want to withstand the storms and temptations and trials of life. It is the eternal, unchanging Word of God. You know, I said this last week, most people who have a problem with the Bible is is true, trustworthy, authoritative, divinely inspired. They do so because they disagree with what it says. It's an inconvenient truth for them. It makes them uncomfortable. They don't want to submit their personal lives or their political views to what the Bible has to say, so they try to discount it. In his book, The Reason for God, Timothy Keller writes this. He says, An authoritative Bible is not the enemy of a personal relationship with God. It is the precondition for it. And then he asks a pointed question. If you don't trust the Bible enough to let it challenge and correct your thinking, how could you ever have a personal relationship with God? Because in any truly personal relationship, the other person is allowed to contradict you. (laughs) And all the husbands said, Amen. That's right. In any relationship, it's not a relationship if you're not allowed to contradict me or have a different view from me. Yet we want to treat God that way. And yeah, we like the Bible, we believe it, we listen to God as long as it scratches our itching ears and tells us what we want to hear. But when it contradicts us and our politics and our personal lifestyle choices, then we want to kick it to the curb. The question is, do you trust God? Do you believe that he really knows things better than you do? Are you convinced that the truth sets us free? Or are you buying into the serpent's lie that God isn't good, he can't be trusted, and he's holding out on you? Which is it? And what difference does all this make? As we wrap up here, what difference does this make? Well, if you believe the Bible is God's divinely inspired word, if you believe that it it points the way to salvation, that it's sufficient and authoritative in our lives and faith and practice, that it's powerful and infallible and without error, then prove it. How does your life reflect whether or not you believe that? Well, by what you do with this book. So I'm going to challenge you in this new year, if, if the Bible is the word of God, It must go from our head to our hearts to our hands. And how do we do that? Real quick. One, I'm going to challenge you this year to read God's Word. Read God's Word. Get it into your head. Listen to it taught and preached. Read it. Follow a reading plan. Maybe you're going to read through the Bible this year. Maybe you're going to use some other reading plan. Maybe you've got a devotional. Spend some time every day reading God's Word and get it into your head. But more than just read it, study it. Study God's Word. Understand what it meant. You can't understand what it means to you today if you don't understand what it meant when it was written. So study it. And listen, I can give you some great resources. There are some good online resources. There are some not good online resources, but there are some good online resources. There are some great study Bibles and commentaries that are written for people that haven't been to seminary that you can use to help you study and understand what God's Word means, what it says. One great way to do that is to be in a Sunday school class. Be a part of a small group of people that are studying God's Word through together every week. Get it into your head. 
But then we've got to get it from our head into our hearts. And we do that by believing God's Word. Believe it. Commit yourself to it. Bring yourself underneath its authority and let it make that difference in your life. From our head to our heart and then finally to our hands. Live God's Word. Do what it says. Be obedient to it. Live your life under that authority. That means you have to trust and obey, as we sang earlier. And listen, the most important way that we can believe and live the Word of God, the number one foundational way we can do that is by having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. The Bible has salvation for its end. God has given us this book so that we can know Him and love Him and be forgiven and saved by Him and spend eternity with Him. Have you done that? Have you given your life to Jesus Christ? If you've not done that, I pray you would do that today, right now. If you're worshiping with us online or on the radio, please reach out to us. Send us a comment. Give us a call. We want to help you know that you've got a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Maybe that's what you need to do this morning. Maybe God is speaking to you and asking you to unite with this church family as a, as a church that believes the Word of God, as a church that preaches and teaches the Word of God, as a church that wants to help you build your life on that solid foundation. Maybe God has spoken to you in another way. The point is, is that God's Spirit takes God's Word and reveals Himself to our hearts. He convicts us. He encourages us. He equips us. The thing we must do is listen and obey. What does that look like for you today? Would you stand with me and pray? Father, we are thankful for Your Word. We are thankful that it is true. We're thankful it has stood the test of time. People have tried to destroy and discount Your Word for over 2,000 years. And it has showed time and again that it is true, it is trustworthy, it is transforming. And God, I pray You would help us to unleash the power of Your Word in our lives as we read and study and pray on it, as we believe it and obey it, God, as we share it with other people. Help us, Lord, I pray. In Jesus' name. I'll be standing here to receive you whatever decision you need to make today. I pray you would come.